How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well, we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Golf Talk Live. Let the word go out from here across the land. Let Daddy Noonan uh, approve. Hey, this is Shooter McGavin. You're listening to the 19th Hole Podcast. And welcome to another edition of Golf Talk Live's 19th Hole Podcast. I am Alan DePew, your host. And I am joined, as always, by our panel of uh, esteemed and knowledgeable experts in the industry. And we're devoting this show to uh, architecture and we happen to have one with us uh, today, uh, Stephen K. Join uh, the notable Stephen K. Joining the uh, the podcast, the the panel today, and as always, Andy Hydorn of Sportsbox, Bob Baldessari, Reimagine Golf. Uh, we're missing a couple of bodies tonight, uh, boys. But uh, as we record on Tuesday, you're hearing this going live on Wednesday morning. But uh, welcome, everybody. How was your week? Happy New Year. Yeah, new happy year. new year that's true happy new year thanks bobby i can't believe it's 2023 by the way wasn't it just 1999 going into 2000 and and, no, and, none, and none of our computers were going to work right <laughs> crazy it goes fast it goes wicked fast it, yeah there's the boston there's the boston accent right there uh, i remember sitting sit on a couch in medford with my buddy harry 1999 waiting to Turn the calendar and waiting for everything to blow up. <laughs> but you know, you know, it's interesting though. I was doing a project in Florida and it was maybe June, the beginning of the construction, because they tend to do a lot of their renovation in the summertime. And I'm on the plane and I lived in in, in uh, New York at the time. And I was flying back to LaGuardia from Tampa. And this guy next to me on the plane, he looked nervous and he was writing stuff and it looked electrical. And it turned out he was in charge of an electric plant in upstate New York. And he had just come from a conference that told this story that he told me. And, and the people from, from Microsoft were there listening and, and, and because they were part of it. This small city north of San Francisco, 100,000, 200,000 people that they, you know, you know, powered. They hired Microsoft to come in, duplicate all their computers exactly, and then set the date to like Christmas and see what happened when it hit January 1st. And it crashed. Oh, my God. It crashed. <laughs> and Microsoft always, and they, they thought, we thought, we think we caught it in time to work it out. And he says, every power plant in the country was going to find out about this and what was going on. And, um, Obviously, it didn't happen, but but he I think he was telling me the truth. I don't think he was exaggerating. And uh, he was pretty shook up. <laughs> there were a lot of paranoid people. I mean, we there were. Right now, but, I mean, hey, there hey. are a lot of people believing that that it was going to be a lot of problems. So uh, watch how I'm going to do this, Bobby. OK, I'm going to yeah. work as I'm going to work us back to golf, golf architecture and, and the golf business here. Real Steven, fast. From Y2K, so Steven, huh? Yeah. yeah. Watch how I'm going to do this. So my father, God rest his soul, was uh, with uh, IBM. OK. And he was sideways about Y2K. Sideways. He, he yep. had no idea what was going to happen. Was he near Poughkeepsie working? 
Uh, he actually was down in Manassas in, in Northern Virginia at that point, okay. but he, he was in the fish kill plants up there. Yes. Many times. Yeah. So, and this is how I'm going to do this, Andy. So my father, that on my mother's side though, I've told this story, Stephen and I've laughed at it. Stephen's been a long time supporter of golf doc live back when we were doing our radio days. Um, Stephen has an auspicious uh, start in the business and a connection with me. <laughs> His first job it's in true. the biz- his first job in the business. And the story is I pulled up at Yardley Country Club. I was involved in that property at that time. Steven had done a master plan for him. And I looked at Steven and I said, How do you know? Do you know the name Frank Eck? And I think you about fell out of the cart, didn't you? I did. <laughs> Frank Eck was my great uncle on my mother's side and the very first uh foray into the golf industry for you. <laughs> Sort of. I, I I grew up in Queens and they, and the pro at Clearview Golf Course used to let me play for free if I went and raked bunkers. So I wasn't paid. But my first paid job was at the Concord Hotel where Frank Eck, your great uncle, was was green superintendent who was he knew how to grow turf. But boy, he was in that old school of being a mean person. He'd <laughs> yell and scream my first summer. Now, this is 45 holes, 36 and a nine holes par three sort of executive. I think there was one par four. I saw 30 guys come and go the first summer that he'd either fire or they quit. It was, uh, you'd hear him yelling at people three holes away, <laughs> but he did know how to grow grass. <laughs> That's old school, right? It old was, school. it was today. You'd get canceled. Yeah. Well, back in those, he, he also told me all you needed to do is get a little mercury and could take care of that crab. Grass well, I did. He, That's right. <laughs> That's what you. That's what. That's what it was. I said Frank. Is mercury was Frank, in all is, the fungicides. Frank, wasn't that illegal? God, no, you're good. No, it wasn't. It didn't become <laughs> illegal to about seventy. I think seventy four. They took it off the market. They took it off the public market. Mercury. There's a lot of chemicals that they first take out of Home Depot and Lowe's and for the public, but the licensed pesticides guys could use it for a couple more years. Plus, another thing, if they take a chemical off the market, like say Nemocure, which cured uh, uh killed uh nematodes if you had it you could still use it now do right. you guys know that's a quiz why right. do they let you still use it they won't you can't buy anymore but why could you still use it i'm not sure any why, idea no, you still have them in inventories the reason you could you they want you to use it properly to get rid of it if you couldn't use it people might illegally dispose of it Right, like dump it in the stream or something like that. So they allow you to use it, and that is yeah. adjunct professor Rutgers uh, turf sure. grass, also uh, as well as this. <laughs> That's a good example, uh, Stephen, about the average consumer at their house, the homeowner. They they abuse all kinds of pesticides and all things for the turf, and they overwater, and on and on and on. And yet they drive by a golf course and they see a strategically scientifically irrigation going with the professionals and they go look at this water so you know they're wasting water and i learned when i was in uh, the mid-atlantic pga i was section president i was on the water advisory board and we met multiple times and they did a water study in the most abusive water um the people that abused water the most right at the, i think number two were homeowners the number one use was nuclear plants and then lumber yards Golf courses were so far down the list; it was unbelievable. It, but the it, public, it, 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 it is unbelievable. Back in the mid mid nineties, New York State started a water commission, 
uh, about water, and especially because New York City was afraid they were going to run out of water. Ted Horton at the time was the green superintendent at Westchester Country Club. He had been at Wingfoot. He was the green superintendent in the 1974 Open at Wingfoot when Hale Irwin won. And he went to Westchester from there. He went to Pebble Beach. But anyway, one of the guys on the committee was some congressman who was a member of Westchester Country Club. He talked them into putting Ted on the committee. They looked at all of the golf courses in Westchester County, New York, approximately 100, public and private added, approximately 100. All of the water use they used for a whole year. You know what that equaled and how much if they if they were to keep using that water, what that equaled in New York City's use of water. Got any idea? Uh, probably not even a fraction of a percent. It was six hours. All of the water on the golf courses for an entire year in Westchester County equaled six hours of water in New York City. Oh, my God. So they, so you're going to cut us off. So people are going to die six minutes earlier because <laughs> yeah, they don't have any water. You know, uh, it's, it's unbelievable how you're 100 percent. You're 100 percent right, Bob, on how much golf courses do use a lot of water, but it's nothing compared to what. Is the real well, use of water? I, I tell golfers in a perfect world, the superintendent doesn't want to use a lot. They want it firm. They want to drive deep exactly. over water. You get disease. And it's the same thing with the chemicals. They think, oh, they're putting down so many chemicals. Now, it's chemicals are expensive when you're you're fertilizing, fungiciding, insecticiding 100, 150 acres of property. They're going to be as 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 economically cheap almost to a point to okay. not overdo it. Oh yeah, there's a lot of urban legends urban myths out there about you know all of this stuff it's like keep your head down left arm straight but well that's for another show that, that yeah that's, but, that's, but that's, I've, I've always said this too and and you know different parts of the country are different right the turf grass is different but you show me a guy in texas with bermuda grass who waters too much and i'm going to show you a guy who's a crappy superintendent you know mm -hmm. Because it seems like it's the it's the crutch for the guys that aren't really great at what they do. And I've seen it from Champions Golf Club, which is a wonderful facility here in Texas. Had a guy in there that was just incapable of, of really taking care of the golf course the way it was supposed to be taken care of. He overwatered the hell out of the place. And, you know, they finally got rid of him after years and in one year place has been great ever since it's interesting you say that because it's 100 percent truth to that do you all know who dick bader is you heard that name yes all right dick dick bader was the green superintendent first at some good golf club in massachusetts he then went to oak hill and had an opener at pga and then he went to pine valley and he was the superintendent of pine valley in the 80s that got it up to number one in the world uh and then he was at marion and he was at some club in in cleveland and he was at Atlanta City Country Club for a while, but he once said that the reason these top guys at the top clubs get so much money, he says they're getting so much money because they know how to water. Yeah. And he said that right in front of right in front of an owner and a super. I, I called him into Forest Gate Country Club with the when the previous superintendent was there uh, and he was going, that's you, you. And that's how I was taught when I went to Syracuse in architecture, Michigan State and turf grass. And I was taught by Dr. Beard, who was like the, the, 
you know, the guy about turf uh, at the time, the USGA hired him to, to, to write their book on golf course management. He always said the first day you start to see wilt and you're thinking of watering, don't water. See what it looks like in the morning. And in the morning, he says, I'm going to guess eight out of 10 times there's no wilt in the morning. And then and just keep doing that until there's wilt in the morning. Then water right away. <laughs> and, and especially he was basically talking about POA because POA yeah. can have such shallow roots compared right. to compared to all other grasses. And first of all, you can't kill Bermuda. I don't know why you'd overwater Bermuda grass. I stood still for too long when I was doing a renovation uh, in, <laughs> in uh, Florida and it came up to about my knee. It started creeping up. I thought it was in a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Stephen, have you ever got sort of like you had a plan, you had a vision, you start in on a job and then you get in the field, you get in, the, you know, knee deep and you go, wait a minute, we've got a pivot. Um, you know, I know there's nuances, but have you ever get in a one? Oh, like always. It, it, most designs without question are done in the field. I mean, I do do a drafting table. I do uh, my, my my routings because I understand contour lines and contour maps. And and let me also say this. Normally, my properties that I've gotten from my new courses, and, and I'm doing my 21st new course right now. I actually have a new golf course under construction. Wow. I think it might That's be the awesome. only muni in the in in the country all the rest tend to be private or a lot of resorts and what i actually state? i actually know the property they right right what right so, so so you were you here at Jer here in jersey andy right right it's in jersey um yeah that's a whole story in and of itself but when you have tight sites where just trying to get a good 18 holes in in a safe manner and I would say that if you gave that to 100 legitimate good ASGCA golf course architects and you have a tight site with 140, 150, 160 acres, you want to get a range in, where's the clubhouse going to be? Especially if they tell you where the clubhouse needs to be because of the roads and entrances and electricity. You're not going to have that many different routings. You really aren't. Right. You might have a few. Now, you take my golf course I did in North Dakota where I had 275 acres. That was that was a whole different story. I mean, we had I had dozens of routings that I did, Bob, change a little bit in the field. Some of the routings, I shifted a couple of green locations, a couple of T locations. The basic routing was the same. Basic routing was the same. But some of the greens shifted over 40, 50, 60 feet. Seven greens, by the way, that was we had six feet of sandy loam soil without a rock in it. It basically wow. met USGA specs. Seven of 20 greens, two putting greens. I liked no trees. I liked the contour so well. I said, okay, we're not touching it. All we wow. did was spray Roundup twice, rototillate, and seed it. Seven greens are the contours that were there. Wow. That's so, old school. So, so for, the, for our listeners out there, Stephen, looking over your shoulder, we're only, we, we're only on audio. We're not on video. So they can't see. They cannot see three different routings right over top of your shoulder here. We're all golfers. We love to doodle. We'd all design. We also, well, I'd move this tee box here kind of as a piggyback to, but where does your inspiration come from when you look at a, when you look at a layout? You mean when I look at a property? Well, I mean a property, excuse me. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing we do when, when, when you get to do a new golf course on a property is what I call, we, we test the site. We do just a line drawing set where the T starts. We go, now we go 800 feet to a dog leg point 
And then we just do the center line with a little circle for the green. And that's it. It's just like a stick drawing. And we route an 18 hole golf course and we test the site first to see, you know, what it start to start to learn what it's going to be from say this location where the clubhouse is going to be. Uh, the, the amount of acres you have, Alan, doesn't necessarily mean you can get 18 hole golf course in. I had a client, a Japanese gentleman, who was a great guy, played golf with him once, he was a great guy. He wanted to build a golf course so badly back in the early 90s. He found a piece of property in up sort of where maybe where you grew up, near Poughkeepsie, up in that area, uh, Columbia County or uh, Putnam right. County. That was like 500 and something acres. I could not get an 18-hole golf course on it. What? For two reasons. Two reasons. One, Wetland. there was a lot of topography, okay. very, very, very steep with a lot, <laughs> a lot of rock in certain areas. But the other thing is, I don't know how this, whoever owned this property came up with the, the shape of this property. It was like spokes on a bicycle. <laughs> And I remember him saying to me, how the heck can't you get 18 holes in? And I showed him, I think the most I got in was 12. I says, let, let me, you, I said to him, you could have 10,000 acres and you might not be able to get a golf course. In. And he goes, how the hell's that? I said, okay, it's 20 feet wide and goes for 40 miles. <laughs> it's 10 feet wide, goes for 40 miles, 10,000 acres. You can't get a golf course. in. Can't get one hole in because it's only 40 feet wide. So the shape of the property is extremely important extremely important so anyway we do stick drawings we get we test the site and then from there we st slowly start to change it i'll tell you one of the most most amount of routings i ever did was for mccullough emerald links the golf course on a landfill in egg harbor township because there was 120 130 whatever it was methane extraction wells that i had to avoid right. and not want them you know in the center of a tee or the center of a green I have a couple in the center of a couple of fairways because I couldn't avoid that where I have mounds and a bunker or things in front of it. So you only see it if you look backwards. You don't see them if you look forward. Right. That And then they said, well, you know what? We'll have an executive golf course. we got to have a range. Then they decided the golf course was too short. Could we have half a range. I mean, they kept going back and forth, back and forth. So I had I, I, I always go A, B, C, D on my plans. I went through Z and then I had <laughs> double A, double B, double C. <laughs> so let me, Go ahead, Andy. No, I got a, I got a question. So Bob and I grew up in the same general part of the world here. And, and, uh, you well, know, you're in Houston, right? Yeah, I am now, but I'm, I'm a New Englander. Okay. Uh, where in New England? So in Boston, North Shore of Boston. North Shore of Boston, Tedesco, yep. Winchester. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Salem Golf Club. Yeah, yep. yep. Salem. Yep. You got it. So, so I'm I am partial to the golden age of architecture. You know, the 1910 to 1930, or however you want to define it. That's kind of what I tend to be. You know, more interested in in terms of design. What's your inspiration? And what time period? What other architects? I mean, where where are your favorites? Well, it, it's interesting you ask that. And and I I also love that period of time. I could argue that the last period was actually better. And, and if you want, I'll tell you my arguments why later. But we learned from them. 
what was amazing about them, it was this new industry. It was this new business, you right. know, with that, that, that people are designing golf courses and, and what they did was remarkable. When I, I was, I was, uh, uh, I went to Syracuse, Michigan state in agronomy. I stayed in Michigan. I was a growing superintendent of a new golf course. Then I worked with a golf contractor and then I worked with Bill Newcomb. Bill Newcomb was the first architect to ever work with Pete Dye. When I decided to go on my own and I wanted to leave Michigan, I said I had a no compete clause with him. It was either go back to New York where I grew up or go to Florida because I was offered a nine hole golf course. This is in 1980s. And I wanted to do an old fashioned uh, uh, golf course, Andy, you know, a Donald Ross Tillinghast, something like that. And I was all excited about moving to Florida, hanging up my sign. I'm an architect in Florida. When I was meeting with them, these were people in Michigan that owned property and wanting to do a nine hole golf course with housing in, in Florida. And they wanted me to be the construction manager during construction. I said, that's fine, but I got to have one or one and a half days during the week where I could go meet people and potentially get more work, future work. And they said, fine. And then I showed up to meet them in Michigan at a restaurant, showing them pictures of Tilling S and Donald Ross. And they start showing me pictures of Lachahatchee and all this steep moonscape thing that was popular in, <laughs> in the 1980s. And they go, we want it to look like that. Meanwhile, while that was going on, I was going to New York every two or three weeks, staying at my parents' house, going and meeting people at the MGA and the P Met PGA and meeting people and looking at some old golf courses, had a little small, little, very little project at an old uh, Colton Allison project because I wanted to renovate the old guys to learn from them. I want to renovate Donna Ross and Tilly Haas and Seth Rayner to learn from them, but also doing a new golf course and, and make plus going to New York. I wouldn't, I didn't have any work. This was a little tiny job I had for a thousand dollars yet. I'm going to get paid 50,000 to do this new nine hole golf course. So economically I would have gone to Florida and probably should have sometimes when I was eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, cause I was starving to death. <laughs> I turned that job down in Florida because I didn't want to do that. I want to do an old fashioned golf course. So that's why I went to New York and and basically just was doing a lot of renovation, doing a lot of stuff, looking at old aerial photographs. And it, it, it's I was doing all this Donald Ross work at the time, but I didn't really become known as a Donald Ross renovator because at the same time in the late 80s, early 90s, I was also doing new golf courses. I was doing Blue Heron Pines and Staten Ridge and the Hamlet uh, uh, Golf and Country Club in Long Island. And because of that, I didn't get this Donald Ross reputation, even though at one point I had done more Donald Ross than some of these other guys did. I had 12 Donald Rosses I had done by 1992. Wow. You know, I, I did work at Salem. I did work at Winchester. I did work at Tedesco, Oyster Harbor in Cape Cod. The best contoured greens I've ever seen. If you've ever been there, you'll agree with me. Mark Fine, by the way, the architect, he agrees with me. Best contour greens he's ever seen. Uh, Oyster Harbor in Cape Cod. So, Steve, Stephen, quite a question for you. You use the word because I, I actually read this just the other day. I, I think it was one of your uh, colleagues uh, in, in the business. But is it a renovation or is it a restoration? And really, what's well, what's you, the, you got they they theoretically say some. I think even the ASGCA says this three things. There is a remodeling. Okay. There is a renovation. Right. Where you're not really changing the holes that changing the design that much. You're renovating what's there. You're 
Rebuilding the bunker, where is there? You do it. A, what's a restoration? A restoration is theoretically putting it back to exactly what, say, Donald Ross designed or Tilly has designed. I don't think no one has done a true restoration. I'll tell you that right now. No one. When I meet with other architects, I don't want to mention names. Go, oh, I did a really true restoration of this course. Okay. You know, Donald Ross, Tilling Hass, 1919, whatever. Go, okay. So you took out the ladies' tees, no ladies' tees. <laughs> <laughs> You're mowing the greens around a quarter of an inch, so the stem's about five. Yep. And, yep. you know, and, and you did, you know, oh, no, that's, I like Michael Herdson, golf architect. Or, or, he or, uses or they, the or term. They or they, they didn't lengthen it. Because yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't lengthen it. You took away back tees that were yeah, added. Absolutely. You got it back to, you got it back to 5,900 yards, 6,200 <laughs> yards. I like his term. He uses the term a sympathetic restoration. But I'm going to say this, in all that work I did in the 90s, when I did work at Shaka Maxson, which, which was a Tillinghast, I or or the Donald Ross, where I always tried to find as many photographs as I could um, to see, you know, Donald Ross, did he flash the sand or bring the grass down the slope? The, uh, unfortunately, there was an article in Golf Digest that that Ron Witten had written. But when I read it, I was like, because the, the article alluded that Donald Ross and these old guys only did the grass down the bank and that it was only the edging of super tenants, edge, edge, edge that got the sand flashed. And I knew that wasn't true. And, and I knew that Ron Witten knew that wasn't true. So I called Ron Witten. I said, what's going on with this article? He says, I'm so pissed off about that article. I said, what? He's, I'm going to fax you. When we're using faxes, I'm going to fax you what I wrote. And they took, they took out three paragraphs from his article to make room for advertising or whatever. And, in the, and he had the paragraphs they took out with paragraphs that said that Donald Ross, they did everything. They flashed sand. They did grass down. They did everything. But that article implied i think it came out in 90 or 91 that all the old architects did grass down so uh, there were a lot of architects at the time that's all they were doing i lost jobs because i was interviewed and i said i don't know if i'm going to do grass down oh, these guys did everything i'm going to look at pictures i'm going to look at stuff i'm going to do what i see in the old photographs plus plus uh what what i do andy is i would always say okay what if you could resurrect donald ross what if you could resurrect Tillinghast, give them one year to see the game of golf in the year, whatever, the year 1995 or the year 2023. Give them one year to see what the game of golf is. How far are they hitting it? What's going here? What's going here? What's the irrigation like? What's the maintenance? What are the greens being mowed at? What's the speed of the greens? And then say, okay, what would you do, Mr. Tillinghast? What would you do, Mr. Donald Ross? Would it still be that 6,400-yard Ross you know, design? Yeah, what, would it, what would it be? You know, the greens wouldn't be as sloped. Donald Ross really slopes some greens. Tillinghast did much softer greens. Right. It, it, other than a couple of sites I know where they were very hilly sites. Then he did steeper greens, but because of because of the slopes. But on flat sites, Donald Ross did steep greens. Bobby? Yeah, Stephen, I've I've got like 10 questions here for you. So I could <laughs> go ahead, go. I, I I'm not sure what, I'm looking at all of them. I'm not sure which one to, to go, but I'll start with this one because it uh I've been involved in this for a while. I mean, what do you think the role of the architect is, you, restoration, whatever you want to call it, under the um, badly overused cliche growth of the game? But I'm going to say player development. Um, what, do you, what do you feel you need to do, what you should do, your fellow architects should do to help embrace, get new golfers into the game, et cetera? 
try to give you a short answer on that. (laughs) One, I I try to, whether it's a fancy private club that's got a million and a half dollar budget or a a public or a daily fee where their budget's a half a million dollars. uh, I try to make it so that the golf course is easier to maintain. I was in maintenance for six years. So I I try to make it so that it's not ridiculous to maintain. Uh, Even if you're a fancy club with a big crew, what if the economy, I know clubs that had a million and a half dollar budgets in, in 2005, and by the time they got to 2011, their budgets were 600000 So, you know, you, maybe you can't do all that hand mowing. So I try to make the golf course easier to maintain. And I was always a big supporter, even before tee it forward. I started playing with clubs in the late 90s with changing the tee colors. Uh, I tried to do it at Yardley. I definitely did it at some other clubs where, so let's say they had, let's say, say they had this red. Steven I've, done, Steven, I've done it at every club I've gone to. Right. Red, gold, white, and blue. Right. And you get so many young guys who can't even break a hundred. Yep. They're playing the blue. So I would say, and we did it at Douglaston Golf Course in Queens with 65,000 rounds. We took the red, gold, white, and blue, and we changed it to red, white, blue, and black. And all these guys that were playing blue were now playing blue, which is really the white. <laughs> and right. some of the white guys that moved up because they didn't want to go to the senior tees. Now they're playing the white. And at Douglas and Golf Course in Queens with 65,000 rounds, and they monitored it. They picked up 22, 22-minute faster round of golf. And I think that's one of the roles of an architect. we got to make this a quicker game. Got to make it a quicker game. Well, what you, you – one of your designs, actually, that I visited, uh, I think it was late last fall, uh, Blue Fox Run. One of the best opening holes. I, I love your opening hole there. Big, wide open. Um, it's just a beautiful golf hole. And it's you can just tell people can get through that golf hole fast. Which golf course? <laughs> Blue Fox, Blue Fox Blue Run. Blue Fox Run in, yeah. near Hart, in Avon, yeah, Connecticut? Yeah, yeah, near, in Hart, in uh, near okay. Hartford. Yeah, uh, Avon. Okay. okay. Yep. So I, actually, I, I, that, I actually renovated the 18 and did a new nine. So the hole you're talking about was a hole that I renovated. I took down trees. I made it wider. That's right. It that's wasn't right. a new oh, hole. It wasn't that's a right. new Owner, hole. You're right. Yes. That's Owner why I did. wanted to double check. You weren't talking about blue heron pines. No, no, no. Which no. I did in South Jersey where I actually live. That's where I am. Right. Now. Right. Andy. So, okay. So my next question is a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, being here in Texas, um, we run into places uh, from time to time, you know, kind of high-end clubs that feel the need to put Bermuda greens in, in this climate. Uh, sorry, bent greens in, in this climate. And everywhere I've seen it, first of all, it, being from the Northeast. You're too, Houston, you know, you're too far south for, for bent grass. But, but Dallas and Waco, I mean, they have bent grass up there. And it's ridiculous because as as much golf as I played on Bermuda greens, the Bermuda greens now are so good. Oh yeah. And to me, they're better putting surfaces than bank greens um, in the north. I just, I just actually they're firmer. Well, they're, they're better than the POA bent greens. I don't know that they're better than pure bent greens, but the bow they're better than a pure bent. But no, you're right. Tiff Eagle. I redid four golf courses in Florida back a while ago. All Tiff Eagle. This Tiff Champions. This Tiff Sunday. These all these new ultra fines are they're wonderful grasses. They're incredible, and and you know there, there's a a course we had a tournament on uh, two years ago in Waco. 
called Ridgewood. And Ridgewood has bentgrass greens in Waco, Texas. And it's a nightmare because there's no root structure. You know, they have to be so like wet and footprints and, you know, they explode with ball marks. It's like, I don't get why people think that that's a premium move to, to do that. They don't, they, they don't know. They don't have any experience with both grasses. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a master plan, which we actually haven't done much of an implementation there, but it was interesting. I did work at the only Tillinghast course in Ohio, Lakewood Golf Club uh, outside of Cleveland. The superintendent was a great superintendent, one of the best maintained courses in Cleveland, did a big job with him in the early 2000s. They sort of unfortunately push him out because he was, you know, in his 60s and he goes down to uh, in North Carolina, but just north of Myrtle Beach. So the southern part of North Carolina. And he ends up becoming a green chairman. <laughs> He's an ex superintendent, hires me. And one of the first things we did there is we regrassed the greens and we grassed them to, to Fiegel and they're doing great. And, and you know, how much further north is that than Houston or Dallas? A ton. A ton. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, straight up, if you just went straight up and over, it's what, six hours north. It's a yeah. major difference. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I think I think they're making the wrong agronomic decision. That's, you know, yeah, they should and- talk to the professors at Texas A&M. That's what yeah, they should do. Right. And it and it it just it kills me because it's it's a move on their part to make their place more premium when it does just the opposite. Makes well they think more- of Augusta, but Augusta's got heating and air conditioning in their greens. <laughs> you mean the Augusta complex the is real? <laughs> and and they close in the summer. It's not a dollhouse, it's real. <laughs> All right, next question. I've got you know. A few more to go, but um, <laughs> try, we'll try to make the answers quicker and quicker. Go ahead. Yeah. Let, well, let's talk about what a lot of amateur golfers think is the pretty things out there, but from a turf grass standpoint, too many trees on the course are not good. And what Oakmont did a few years ago, I think, started to move the needle a little bit. And I've gone to courses like Manchester Country Club up in New Hampshire. They did a massive tree removal. I mean, I think they took out, uh, I was up there, I was talking to the general manager. They took out so many trees. They brought in a lumber company. They deforested the place just about, and they ended up making some money because there were so many trees that they took out. I don't know if you ever played there, Andy, but they great design. Paper, they opened a paper mill. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, a lot of golfers think it's, uh, oh, the trees are pretty. I mean, the specimen trees are fine, um, uh, but it, I've got a, a, a neat well, let me let you answer that first. I've got a, a fun little story after that talking about trees. All right, real, real quick on trees. I actually did a talk. The last time I spoke at the New Jersey Expo was December of 2019, right before COVID. And they had asked me to talk a little bit about two things, the history of bunkers and the history of trees. And just very quickly, I did a lot of research on it. Golf courses really didn't start planting trees until the mid 60s. With Lady Bird Johnson's thing, she started a program, Beautify America, which was first to get the billboards off the interstates. Now, you do see billboards on interstates, but they're not on the interstate. They're on the property outside the interstate. When the interstates were first built because of Eisenhower, the the government was actually renting land on the interstates for billboards. And it was billboard, billboard, billboard. 
So she got this campaign to get them off. And she took about three, four years and she got them all off. But she wanted to keep this thing, Beautify America. And there was actually ads in People Met, not People Magazine, Life Magazine, Beautify America, Plant a Tree. And there were ads to plant a tree. Now, think about private country clubs. Not what are most of them, nonprofit. They were not rebuilding bunkers. Bunkers were a hazard. So what were they spending their money? We were planting trees. When I worked for Bill Newcomb in, in Michigan in the late 70s, early 80s, we were doing master plans for trees. They were doing tree planting plans. And half the trees were memorial trees for, you know, their dead grandmother or whatever. But then they realized that the trees, trees and roots and shade do not go with turf grass. And it was a problem as they grew. But now we're starting to get all Augusta's now starting to show all 18 holes on TV. Beautiful color, you know, shows. I don't know if you guys remember this, but in the late 60s and the Bob Hope Classic, they actually colored one of the years. They colored the bunker sand to different colors on this hole. There was yet red and this hole was yellow and this hole was blue. And the bunkers had different colors for one season. For wow. one season. And then they, they took that out. They didn't do it anymore. Did it one year. They did it because they were going to color TV. <laughs> so they did the uh, awesome. the peacock, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, then so clubs now want to start having, and and the pros wanted all the bunkers to be the same. So, and I talked to a lot of older architects. When did you really get into bunker renovation projects to rebuild all your bunkers so there was a consistency that really didn't happen until about 1990? And by the way, trees started to come down basically around 2000. Mark Coons at uh, Oakmont started to take them down in '97, and then. Wingfoot after the Davis Love one and you had the rainbow there. They they were complaining about it. I was in Westchester County at the time. You didn't hear about it on TV, but it went around the county that the pros hated what was going on in Wingfoot. They were in the middle of some of the fairways, middle of the fairway, and they would have to hit draws or fades around trees to get to the green. So one group and my cousin's a member of Wingfoot and he was on the Greens Committee a few years later. Uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He, they, they took Tom Weisskopf, because an architect, and went around with the golf committee. And Crenshaw went around with the Greens committee. Weisskopf wanted a thousand trees down. Ben Crenshaw wanted two thousand trees down. This was only a year or two after Oakmont. So Wingfoot started taking him down at Mass. And what 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 you said, um, uh, Bob, was right. It, but it was also Wingfoot. Oakmont and Wingfoot sort of gave permission to the golf industry that it was okay to cut down trees. Thank God. Like, uh, <laughs> I, do you guys, are you guys golf club Atlas guys? Well, well, There's there this one guy wrote on, why would you hire Stephen K? Did all this work at Leewood and they only took down seven trees. I wish, <laughs> and I, I heard this years later and I wish I, I was on at the time because I would have showed him my preliminary plans. I had 400 trees coming down. 400 trees I wanted them to cut down, and they only allowed me to cut down seven. This is in the mid-90s because they were tree huggers, and it's taken a long time for clubs to not be tree huggers. Well, here, there's a, let me see, give you a, a – I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this because I think you know his name. I was an assistant pro at Weston Golf Club just outside of Boston. Don Hearn was the superintendent. Don was the uh, past president of the Superintendent Association, and he told me the story one time on the seventh hole at Weston – iconic great sort of quote-unquote signature hole of the club there was this big willow that was blocked well not blocking but it over it was at the side of the green in the island it was almost like an island green peninsula green it was gorgeous remember playing there Randy? oh yeah seventh hole and so don said 
he kept telling the uh, Greens Committee, he's got disease, got disease, this and that. And they said, don't you ever touch that. Don't you ever touch that. It can't. That's iconic. That's Weston, like the whole thing. So one winter, he went out, he knocked it down. It wasn't until, now that was in the winter. Next August, somebody August. Noticed. Yeah. So. Before you know, they realized the tree was down was August. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. It was late summer. <laughs> so to your point, it's like, yeah, it looks pretty, looks nice, but you can't ever touch it. But you have to do those things for the, for the, the health of the turf. And, and that green was suffering. Right. Also, if you if you look at the old drawings of Donald Ross and William Flynn, Tillinghas didn't really do that detailed of the drawings. But you look at the width of their fairways on their gridded plans. Fairways were 45 to 60 yards wide. Now, it was basically the 1950s when fairways suddenly got 30 yards wide. Do you do you know why, gentlemen, they went to 30 yards wide? Probably because the trees were encroaching. No, they didn't start planting the trees really until the 1960s. OK, Lady Bird Johnson. Anybody? It was because what, now when Tillinghast did his courses in the 20s and Donald Ross did his course in the 20s, what did they irrigate? They irrigated the tees and the greens. <laughs> it wasn't until they started irrigating the fairways, a single row down the middle, quick couple, yeah. screw it in, dit, 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 the water, and the water basically shot 45 feet to the left, 45 feet to the right. You had 30-yard fairways. That's why fairways were so got narrower. And, of course, then they did start planting trees. But think about it. And then you have the U.S. Open with their 20-yard fairways. What is, what's a more strategic golf course, a narrow fairways or wide fairways? Wide fairways are much more strategic because it's angles. Here, let, let's exaggerate. Let's say the U.S. Open gets so protective of par and these guys get so good that they make the fairway three yards wide. Exaggerate. I'm exaggerating. Three yards wide. And that's, Rory's that's like, on the left like, side. That's like Corey, that's like Corey Pavin hitting, yeah. Yeah, aiming for yeah. the walk-off at Bethpage. Rory McIlroy is on the left-hand side of the fairway, and Dustin Johnson <laughs> on the right side of the fairway. They're, they're two yards apart. but One's on the left side, one's on the right side. Does one of them have an advantage going to the pin? No. Now let's make it 100 yards wide. And Rory's on a far left side and 100 yards over to the right is Dustin Johnson. Might one of them have a better angle into the green? Absolutely. What The wider the fairways, the more strategic the golf is. And it'll speed up play because they'll find their ball quicker, the average player. And, and to me, I, I, love, I love the strategy from the green back to the tee, right? So mm -hmm. the way the green's built, the, the sight lines – bunkers more for for protecting the visual and and then you start working back and figuring out what part of the fairway is better to be in and and uh yeah i i really struggle with with the one dimensional way to play holes it it just it becomes a little bit a little bit uh boring and frustrating uh, it's even good good well yeah to andy's point um what, what would you say to the average golfer when they play a golf course and they look at the golf holes? How could you help them play or notice things to play the hole better, the course better? Interesting question. Now, if you're talking about the average golfer, to me, the average golfer is the guy that's shooting 95 to 105. Now, maybe that's not. If you're telling me, and I would recommend something different to him than a guy who shoots 85 to 95. The guy that shoots 85 to 95 has a little bit of control of his game. And I might try to explain to him risk and reward and, and try to play a little bit of strategic golf because if he succeeds, 
he's going to be rewarded. The guy that shoots 95 to 100, I'm going to say play away from the bunkers. I'm going to say don't try to reach the green with a three-wood or a five-wood. Just lay up. Guys, I had an uncle in Staten Island. Didn't start playing golf till he was 67, and he played golf till he was at 94 years old, walking, pulling his cart. My uncle Leo. That's why he lived in 96. <laughs> he literally walked when he was 94 years old playing. He always said to me he played better when he just laid up short of the green, didn't get near the greenside bunkers, and then he was half decent with his wedge, put the wedge on the green. And he would go around and, and he would just bogey each hole, and, and he would shoot his, you know, 90 to 95. And he was 90 years old. Now he kept moving. He started playing at 65 and he, you know, was playing the white tees and he eventually started playing, you know, the senior tees. And he even occasionally on some long holes, he would just go up to the red if they when he got really old. Hmm. You, you got to play the appropriate yardage. And that's Great. the problem with these young guys today. They're starting who started playing because of COVID. They think because they're six foot two and they, they can hit a 280 once in a while that they should be playing the tips. Watch it. Here we go, Andy. Watch how I do this once again here. So that leads me as we hear, we're on our 18th hole. We're winding this down, Steve. And I got to get this question in restorations golf. I've, I've been speaking at a few conferences lately. Everything I hear, obviously the golf boom restorations slash renovations are up, but so is alternative type golf facilities, shorter courses, alternative courses, What's your thoughts on that for those new golfers that are coming in that should be playing it forward? Well, I was hired a few years ago by the city of East Orange, New Jersey. They had an 18-hole golf course that was closed for two or three years. The clubhouse was in horrible shape. The golf course is in terrible shape. And they had gone down. This is a municipal golf course in New Jer North Jersey that got was getting less than 10,000 rounds a year. So it was closed for three years. They talked to different architects. They all wanted to make it longer. And they had property across the road to put a driving range in and all that. And they asked me what I would do. I said, I wouldn't do that. I would make the guy, I'd put a range in because there was no range. I wouldn't put it across the street. I'd take away two golf holes. I'd make the guy, I'd take the golf course from 6,700 yards down to 6,100 yards, par 70, have a faster round of golf, have less bunkers. There was like 60 bunkers on it. I said, all we need is 25 bunkers. And small bunkers that they can hand rake to make them more because the sand pro is the worst thing you could have in a bunker. You want to hand rake them, but to hand rake them and not be tempted to use a sand pro, they got to be small bunkers. That's what I'm doing on the new golf course. The new golf course is not long. It's it's maybe we're going to maybe have it at 6,500 yards, but I put a good range in a, a, a good large putting green. And you know what else we're putting in in Allen at this municipal golf course? We're putting in a miniature golf course. Love nice. it. Love right, it. right by the clubhouse to get yeah. right by the range, right by the clubhouse. You know, grandpa could bring the kids out. Oh, well, let's go down after we play miniature golf. Let's go hit some balls. And maybe that six or seven year old, by the time he's nine years old, grandpa could take him out on the golf course. Love so it. I, th I th we got to make the courses easier and quicker rounds of golf. And we got to make the golf courses maintainable in a, in a, I don't really like the word sustainable, but that's a buzzword. It is. Andy, 18th Green, final thoughts. Well, this has been a, a special show for me because golf architecture has always been, since I was a kid, a, just a huge passion of mine. And getting a chance to talk to you, Stephen, has been really awesome. 
Um, and I hope we can do it again sometime. I'd be, I'd be happy to do it again. Any, any, any time. Yep. A couple times, two, three times a year. Nothing wrong with that. We, we would not run out of questions. I promise you that. Um, and we do have some great guests coming up. Um, I think, I think when people like Steven come on our show, it just makes our show so much more interesting and, and uh, better. Um, so I'm really looking forward to all the things that we're doing here uh, in the upcoming year. Alan, I want to get back to one other thing you said, alternative golf. So I do think we need shorter golf courses. I think the role of municipalities really would be to do executive golf courses for somewhere to play because a daily fee golf course, are you really going to get a return on investment for a private person to, to build it? But the only reason 12 holes isn't going going through that much, I think, because, you know, the, I don't, do you know the Fraser family at Atlantic City Country Club? Did you yeah. know them? Yeah, I do. So they were really big on trying to make Mays Landing before they sold it a 12-hole golf course. Right. But they've talked to people, talked to people at the USGA, talked to people at the PGA, but the USGA more because they're the handicapping. How do you have a 12-hole handicap? You know, I have a friend who's retired, played with me on the Syracuse golf team. He lives in, in, in North Carolina now. And where he is, he plays in a nine-hole league, and he has a nine-hole handicap that also on, the, on his card has the 18-hole handicap basically just doubles it right people play there's a 12 hole golf course how do you play that 12 holes on a consistent basis and post the score i think math can solve that problem too i i think so i lou riccio that's somebody you should interview by the way lou riccio he helped come up with the course rating and the slope rating with dean canute back in the back in the 80s he's a statistics professor at columbia university there's got to be a mathematical way that they could figure it out, but that's what they got to do. The USGA has got to figure out a way that 12 hole golf courses could do it because I think that's the solution. So many golf courses are struggling. They go to 12 holes and the rest of the land, they can build townhouses and empty nest community. And now it's a win, win, win for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Bobby, we're going to, we're going to say that's Steven's final thought and, and an excellent one. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on. I think in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, like Andy said, I was sitting in class trying to learn, but I was doodling away inventing golf holes. Um, it's just it's just something I think if you get if you're in the game at a certain age, you just you can't help doing that. Um, you know, there's certain things I, I still get a bunch of questions I wanted to leave with you. But um, I guess a final thought is, you know, when people think about the biggest equipment change in the game of golf that affected the game of golf. Uh, some years ago, I read something, and and we think of golf equipment and drivers and putters and things, and and it is true. But I did read a really eye-opening article. It's been so many years, but um, the idea of the advancement in technology of the the, the mower at the uh, golf facility, the irrigation. Um, if if the golf equipment in 2023 was being played in the old-time golf courses, you know if you think of it that way but but just it people always think hey technological advance and they always default into golf equipment but if people could think about the amazing advancement on the turf and the amazing work that superintendents do some of my best friends are superintendents i, ha I hold them in the highest regard um the courses these days are amazing you're you're 100 right and i think if you guys have never talked to and had on your podcast more coons who was at Oakmont and in Baltusrol, uh, because he's an, and he's retired now from that teaching part time at Rutgers, because he started when it was when I started 
mowing at the Concord Hotel with, with Alan's great uncle, Frank Eck. We were mowing fairways at one inch. One inch. And greens were a quarter of an inch, maybe three sixteenths. Wow. That's a, that's a tease these days. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. You're right. It was, it was actually the first big technology thing was in the late 70s. I think it was 78 or 79 when because of, of, of metal technology, they were able to come up with a tournament bed knife that was thinner and wouldn't warp with the speed of the of the of the of the real spinning. Uh, before that, you, the shortest you could get was really three sixteenths of an inch. So that was the first start of the greens getting faster, the tournament bed knife. And then you know, how maintenance, it's remarkable where maintenance has gone. Just remarkable. And you are these these guys. Nine at nine. I'm not going to say ten out of ten, but nine out of ten of these super tenants are very good super tenants. They really I agree. Are. I agree. I'm going to echo what our other panelists have said, Stephen. Thank you, as always. Always good to see you. Always good to have you chat golf with you. Um, on behalf of uh, the family, I apologize for Uncle Frank uh, barking at you many years ago. But look. Look, everything you gave back to the game because of, right? We're gonna no, I learned it. a lot about turf from him. I learned a lot about turf from him, and he did not, uh, you know, I wanted to be a golf course architect since I was 15 years old. Uh, so I feel blessed that the good lords allowed me to do what I wanted to do. But I, but he was the one who sort of convinced me, if you want to get into that field, you need to know about the turf grass. You should probably be a superintendent, then be a golf contractor. And I actually sort of followed his suggestion, and that, I think, helped me you know, get to where I am. And and we appreciate where you're at, your point of view, as always. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back anytime. We're, we'll just, we'll pencil you in for a couple of dates and see if we, our schedules can match up. And uh, Andy, uh, Christian's not here. So I guess I got to say to you, hit it, hit it straight or long and straight because... <laughs> I'm I'm not a good I'm not a good yes man here or a straight man because <laughs> it's better than being what short and crooked Is yeah that... we're gonna go with that it's a good year you only have one opportunity to sell your golf property Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30-plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs. Whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting, be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member, Alan DePew, today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.